Hello, I'm Casey. And I'm Emily. And you're listening to A Sprinkle of Sugar, A Dash of Murder. A true crime podcast. With an element of baking. So we just want to start the episode out by introducing ourselves um, and basically just saying why we decided to do this podcast. So Emily, would you like to start us off? Sure. So yeah, I'm Emily. And we said this in our trailer, but Casey and I have known each other since kindergarten and yeah we grew up together and kind of realized we both have a fascination for true crime so we thought it would be really fun to do our own podcast after you know many discussions of oh my god did you hear that one (laughs) and stuff like that yeah so I mean just to add to that um Emily and I have gone on countless trips together I mean we in total we have probably spent I don't know what do you think like four months in a tent together yeah probably like because we've just taken so many trips together whether it was when we were little or as adults we've just we love adventure so Um, much camping yeah so um i mean that kind of leads us into our first episode because we do plan on covering starved rock which um is we are from illinois yes it's a really good connection to us because we've gone there so many times yeah and um i was actually married there yeah earlier this year yeah, it's fun uh fact. 2020 this year yeah we have a lot of personal connections to starved rock we grew up knowing the story of that place so just thought it was the perfect jumping off point yeah emily was left at a gas station there i was <laughs> <laughs> briefly but <laughs> it was really great <laughs> oh my gosh um, but anyway, so uh, we should start the episode off by me describing what I'm cooking, um, because what we're planning on doing is Emily's going to describe or tell us about the story of whatever she's planning on covering that week, whether it's a murder, whether it's several murders, whether it's a ghost story, I don't know, whatever Emily would like to cover. And then um, I'm going to be cooking something or baking something. So anyway, I thought it was appropriate for me to be cooking um, something with venison in it because, mm. you know, Starved Rock, it's, it's a state park out in the woods. And I'm sure yes, there are plenty, plenty. of deer there. Mm-hmm. So I'm making uh, venison stuffed peppers. And oh, I'll, yeah. I can't wait. It smells really good in here <laughs> right now, by the way. And I'm going to be uh, posting the recipe on our uh, website. So we're going to start with some history of Starved Rock. Starved Rock State Park got its name from a Native American legend. In the 1760s, Pontiac, chief of the Ottawa tribe, was slain by a Peoria Brave, which is a sub-tribe of the Illinois, while attending a tribal council in southern Illinois. And then according to legend, during one of the battles that occurred to avenge his killing, a band of Illinois under attack by a band of Potawatomi sought refuge atop a 125-foot sandstone. The Ottawa and the Potawatomi surrounded the bluff and held their ground until the hapless Illinois died of starvation. Given the name, Starved Starved Rock. Rock. Yeah, so we actually climbed Starved Rock for fun, and it's kind of weird. (laughs) Sorry, okay, we have a dog here. One sec. (laughs) He's so cute. (laughs) So we actually uh, climbed Starved Rock for fun, And uh, it's kind of weird just thinking about, like, the history that's actually occurred there. Yeah. It's very tragic, and people are like, 
haha I'm taking pictures up here but it is such a beautiful view that you can't not <laughs> well we actually recently heard that they do haunted tours there oh yeah which is crazy because Emily and I are like well of course that place is haunted I yeah mean, it totally makes sense and then there's another story um I don't know the, I don't remember the whole story of lovers sleep oh, yeah which is also at Stop Rock. I'm pretty sure it's like this woman who like flung herself off this really high cliff cliff because um, of her husband or lover or someone died. That's basically the gist of it, I think. Yep, so it's a beautiful love story about how a woman killed herself because her something love. happened to her man. <laughs> okay, it's beautiful, but please yeah. don't do that. It's not worth it. Yeah, so one of these days, maybe next year, we're, we're going to have to go on that ghost tour because I can't believe we haven't yet, honestly. That would be so cool. Yeah. All right, so should we get into the murder? Yeah. I mean, that was basically a murder in itself, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> this one's a little bit more recent. So, this is a case of the three murders, and that happened on the grounds of Starved Rock in 1960. So let me take you back. That's my old-timey voice, but I won't <laughs> use it. Well, I'll take you back now. <laughs> uh, so... On March 14th, 1960, three women from Riverside, Illinois, Lillian Edding, I think is how you say it. I apologize if it's not. Um, she was 50 years old at the time. Frances Murphy, who was 47, and Mildred Lindquist, who was 50, are going to Starved Rock, which is in Utica, Illinois, for a four-day vacation. And Lillian was really looking forward to this trip because she had just spent the whole winter caring for her husband who just had a heart attack so she was like let's go ladies like out with her friends and oh my god never seen again did wait but did her husband live do you know yes okay yeah he's in the, he comes back in this story a little later hmm. so employees of the lodge at Starved Rock, where they were staying, said they saw Frances park her gray station wagon in the parking lot, and they were seen coming in, checking into the lodge with all their bags, and then they had lunch at the lodge. And this is all on March 14th. And then after lunch, they went out for a hike through St. Louis Canyon. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful canyon. That's probably one of my favorites. Yeah, that's the spot where they were murdered. Oh, God. <laughs> It is. No, it's a really beautiful spot, but yeah. I wonder where on the trail. Um, you know? Literally in the canyon where the waterfall is. <gasps> yeah, I'll, we'll post pictures so you can see how yeah, it looks. It's, it's beautiful yeah. there. I really want to take wedding photos there. <laughs> yeah. I was like, the whole time during your wedding photos, I was like, oh my God, are we going to take pictures in this spot? <laughs> That's so messed up. <laughs> So the first sign that something was wrong is when George Edding, um, which is Lillian's husband, called the lodge for his wife the night of the 14th, because, you know, no cell phones. He had to call the lodge. Uh, and staff said she was not available and that she'd probably just call him later. And he was like, okay, and hung up. On March 15th, the next day, employees said they saw Chester Wager, who is going to be our prime suspect coming up here, came because he worked at the lodge as a dishwasher. Mm -hmm. um, they said they saw him come into work 
with scratches on his face. So, suspicious. Um, he, Chester Baker is 21 years old at this time, and he's married and has two kids. And then Tuesday morning, George calls again, and an employee mistakenly tells him that the three women were seen at breakfast that morning and had left again on a hike. So I don't know why you would say that if it's not true, because they were not seen, unless they mistook, I can speak, (laughs) mistook them for someone else, you know? So is this him telling investigators afterwards? I don't know how they... I mean, I guess I don't know how busy Starbrack was at the time. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you take that mental note of people? I know. I think that, too. Yeah. I don't... I wouldn't... And there's not, like, security cameras, probably. I feel like I just live in a bubble. I just walk from one destination to another, and I don't pay attention. <laughs> Completely ignoring anyone I gotta, around like, me. start scanning everyone's faces. I know. I feel that. Okay, go on. <laughs> So uh, that night, a blizzard hit, um, which covered a ton of the evidence and the bodies in snow. So they weren't immediately seen. Uh, Wednesday morning, George called again, and this time he insisted that their rooms be checked. He was like, hey, my wife hasn't called me back at all. This is suspicious. So the rooms were checked, and their beds and bags were like completely untouched, and Francis's car was still in the parking lot. So they know they sh- they didn't leave. And George immediately called his friend Virgil W. Peterson, who is director of Chicago Crime Commission at the time. And Peterson contacted state police. And search parties were started within minutes of that phone call. Because I guess if you have connections, they'd get right to it. But March 16th, 1960, a group of boys from Illinois Youth Commission Forestry Camp, which I assume is kind of like, you know, Boy Scouts. Yeah. Um, They actually found the bodies first. And I know um, they told reporter Bill Danley, who was there, like part of, he was part of the search party. And then he went and he first interviewed the boys because he's a reporter. And then he went and told everyone else like, hey, they found the bodies. Oh my God. Yeah. Um... So the bodies were found in St. Louis Canyon, like we said. They, the three women were lying side by side on their backs. Lower clothing was all gone, and their legs were spread open. Yeah, and two of the women were tied together with twine. And they were bludgeoned to death with about 100 blows. And they found a frozen tree limb that was bloody that is believed to be the murder weapon oh my god that's so gruesome i know it's really when you think about it a frozen tree limb that would really do some damage so i guess there was i mean you don't really realize it but when it's frozen that thing's basically a long hard rock yeah um and then this is a quote from the chicago tribune from the time because of the small amount of blood inside the cave and the large amount outside the cave State police theorized the killer may have left the women in the clearing and fled, returning later to drag the bodies into the cave. Yeah. Um, And Frances's camera was found, and it was all bloody, and her binoculars were also found right there. Um, So they looked at the the camera, Mm -hmm. and the women had taken pictures that day. So 
that's kind of it's so like weird to me like those are the last photos of them crazy yeah that kind of stuff is like and they're like i've seen the pictures and they're like smiling having good time in them and i'm like oh my god like just a few yeah just a you know hours or whatever later oh my gosh um the cold because obviously it was there was a blizzard the last night so the cold and limitations of like forensic evidence techniques um at the time they could not find any evidence of rape it likely happened but like i said like the technological evidence at the time they couldn't like prove that a rape had happened right uh they placed the time of death shortly after their lunch so they had just gotten to the lodge on the 14th ate lunch left and they only made it one mile away from wow yeah they were only one mile away from the lodge when this happened so who's the primary suspect again so far chester well nobody so far but um chester wigger becomes okay the that's crazy so prime suspect and you said he's a cook um he was a dishwasher Dishwasher? at the lodge yeah i wonder if he just like followed her okay well i'm probably spoiling things (laughs) yeah no it's okay followed them out that's my guess i don't know this story completely um, so robbery was ruled out because they had left all their jewelry and money at the lodge in their rooms. They only had like their binoculars and the camera on them. There were right from the get go. There were issues with fights over jurisdiction with the state police and the LaSalle County police. So that really put a hindrance on the investigation right from the start. Uh, and it kind of really slowed down the process, which led to pressures from community and the press to solve the case because there was a huge upcry. Like three women of like prominent businessmen in Chicago were murdered and it's taking forever to solve this case. People were really mad about it, understandably. Mm-hmm. And state's attorney Harland Warren decided to take on the case by himself and his two deputies Um to really try and get this solved quickly as possible. And Warren decided to study the twine that was used to bind the women. And they found out it was 20-ply and a 12-ply um, twine. So they used that information to track it down to the manufacturer who said they sold it to the lodge. Okay. And it, that particular type of twine was used to um, package the food at the lodge. So that confirmed Warren's suspicions that an employee must have done this, Mm -hmm. which led to Chester Wager. But he took two polygraphs, and neither one of them linked him to the crime. Did you ever hear that, like, when you take a polygraph, if you, like, clench your butt cheeks together? (laughs) What? (laughs) I don't know. I want to be polygraph tested and, like, clench my butt cheeks and see if it (laughs) Never heard that in my life. I don't know where I heard it, but Mm. maybe that's what he did. Chester? Yeah. Let me feel them glutes. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Maybe we can interview him someday. Did you clench your butt cheeks during this polygraph test? Oh my god. Wait, can you polygraph him and ask him, did you clench your butt cheeks? Yeah, like... (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Thank you for that hot fact. (laughs) Fun fact. Um, oh God, where was I? Oh yeah, so all of the, <laughs> all of the employees had to take these polygraph tests and all of them passed. Um, they weren't linked at all. 
Warren then called in a specialist to interview the employees again. And after the specialist did the test, he said, um, he said, that's your man. And so after that, uh, Chester Wager was brought in for questioning and the police found a buckskin jacket with blood on it that was in his possession. And he had to hand that over. But again, because of limitations of like forensic evidence, they could not type and match the blood. So I know. Think of like, I always think about that. How many crimes could have been solved back then? Like easier if they had like the tech for it. I know. I just feel like um, a lot of the murders happened in, in 60s, 70s, 80s. And then once the tech kind of went up, people were like, ah, it's harder to get away with that. Exactly. That's why like your huge serial killers are in that within those like three decades. Yeah. Pretty much. They're able to get away with it. Yeah. Um, so that leads to September 1960. So the murders happened again in March. So it is now September. Um, and Wager is put under nonstop surveillance. And that at that point, they found the twine that was used to bind the women found in a shed at the lodge. Okay. Um, and then another thing happened uh, that pointed more towards Waker because he was identified as matching the description of someone who had bound and raped a teenage girl with twine a few months before those three murders at Starved Rock. What a coincidence. I know. With, yeah, like the same tools. Like, you're stupid. Um, so on September 23rd, he was brought in again, and this time he failed a series of polygraphs. So he was getting away with it before he passed, but this time he failed. He lost that glute action, I guess. Yeah, he <laughs> forgot to clench his butt this yeah. time. Oh, yeah. So on November 16th, Warren ordered Wager's arrest, and the very next day on the 17th, he confessed to the murders. Um, and in his confession, he says, I was taking a walk through the woods when I turned into the canyon and I spotted them coming toward me and I got the idea to rob them. I grabbed at what I thought was a purse one of the women was carrying and the strap broke. It was actually, end quote, it was actually her camera because they didn't have oh, okay. like their straps or anything. Their straps, their purses. <laughs> so then Wigger reenacts the murders for the police. Um, they went out to St. Louis Canyon, and he walked through the canyon, um, showing them what he did, and he even tied a police officer's hands to show them, like, how he did it. And I'm a, I'm a little surprised they let him do that, but they did. And then he, they asked him why he moved the bodies, and he said that he did it because he saw a plane flying low, and the plane he described, they went to, you know, fact check that. They actually tracked down the plane he's described it was completely true they contacted the pilot and the pilot confirmed yeah i was flying over the star dock at that time that's what my plane looks like so that's a detail only a killer would know right right yes yeah. i mean that just been, must have been so weird for the police officers like going through that with him yeah and like it must have just felt really sinister yeah you know, like knowing that he had done that to um, Who whose idea was that? Because I haven't what? heard of a recent case where someone would do that. And why is that necessary? I mean, he's already confessing. What did they? Yeah, they're like, okay, prove it. Come on, right? Like, yeah, everyone already knows it's him. It was part of his confession, so I don't know. But that's interesting. 
don't see the point. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so that next day after the reenactment and everything, on the 18th of November, the grand jury indicts Wager for murder and three other incidents, um, including robbery, larceny, assault with a deadly weapon, and rape. That happened in Matheson State Park, which is just a few miles from Strapped Rock. So, and did he come forward about that one girl as well? He didn't confess to that, but they are, like, arresting him for that. Whoa. Cooking mishap. (laughs) And then, here's the kicker. On the 19th, he recants his confession. Like, after he did all of that, like, walking them through and telling them all the details, he's like, no, it wasn't me. Well, I mean... They don't believe it, though. I mean, what can they do about it? Right. Yeah. But he he tries to, well, he does recant his confession. And he tries to say that the threats of um, the electric chair and a deal offer that was made to him made him confess. But he's like, I want to take it back now. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. can't, I mean, can't that really mess up investigations, though, when they start bringing up? Um, that there are forced confessions and yeah. everything. Like, mm-hmm. can't that basic? Because when they find that, then they can just throw out a bunch of evidence. Right? Yeah. Because it's like, oh, well, even though I, I said that I did this, and it's very obvious that I did this, you can't use that piece of evidence because you guilt, you, because I guilted, but you like basically forced me to confess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Forced confessions, right? And that's like, that is a thing, of course, mm-hmm. like being pushed into it, like, what is that word? Co- coercion. Oh, yeah. Coercion, yeah. <laughs> I can speak. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. In this case, like, I don't... I think it was him still, but... I mean... Yeah, but it throws a wrench in the investigation. Mm-hmm. So, on December 19th, 1960, he pleads not guilty, and his three-year-old daughter is barred from the courtroom to prevent the jury from being swayed by her. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, you can see that as being like, oh, look at this pretty little child. He couldn't possibly be murdered. He's a sweet father, so. Yeah, I mean, for them to even try that with a little innocent child, like, do you really, I mean, it's best that the little girl wasn't there. At three years old, you still have those memories. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um... March 3rd, 1961, um, so almost a full year after the murder, he is found guilty of murder of Lillian Edding, mm-hmm. O'Edding, um, and is given life in prison with the possible parole of 20 years. And the jury said after they um, came up with their verdict that they did not know that life sentence meant he could get possible parole in 20 years. And a lot of them said that if they knew that, they would have voted for death penalty for him instead. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, and he was only charged for Lillian's death in, because prosecutors thought in the event of a mistrial mm-hmm. or acquittal, they, they could file charges against the other killings. Mm-hmm. April 3rd, 1961, Judge Leonard Hoffman rejects his plea for a new trial, and he is taken to Illinois State Penitentiary in Joliet where he serves his sentence. Um, Skip to a few years later, April 17th, 1963, the state abandons their efforts to get the death penalty for him. So they went back and were trying to get it, but they gave up. Um, 
Well, why can't they? It? Why can't they just do a whole new trial <clears throat> on um, one of the other girls that he killed, and then get a death I don't penalty know. on that one? There's also like that double jeopardy law where you can't be tried for the same crime twice. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't really know how that works. Yeah, but. Yeah, we like you not, can't be tried for murder twice, or maybe I don't know. To preface this, we are not in any way in, in law enforcement doing yeah, anything with no. any of that, so we do not fully understand it. I don't understand terms. I'll I'll look it up so I yeah. don't sound like a dummy we'll in the future. Um, or Emily will educate me after she looks it up. Yeah. <laughs> April twentieth, nineteen sixty-three. He starts writing an autobiography that he gives to the police, claiming his innocence. And he writes, now there's nothing in the world that I needed bad enough to kill on March 14th, 1960. So he's pretty, at this point, he's really firm that he's innocent. Um, And his whole family believes him and says he's completely innocent. And they have all these years later, they still say he's innocent. Wow. Um, July 8th, 2004. So a long time time between this um dna testing was redone on wigger's coat and hair in that was in like the victim's fists um that was found at the time shows contamination so they couldn't they went to like reuse it re-examine it but it had a lot of contamination because since it was first collected a lot of student groups and journalists were able to handle it Mm -hmm. and like touch it so they had to completely like rule out that they could retest that which yes. sucks, yeah. Um, June twenty, no, June two thousand seven. Governor Rod Blagojevich. Blagojevich. I know how to say it, but I like totally because uh, everybody in Illinois knows him and his history. Um, uh, he denies Wager's clemency petition. In twenty sixteen, he's denied parole again and becomes Illinois' third longest held inmate. Oh. Um. November 29th, 2018, he's one vote short of freedom. So he was close in 2018 to being released, but he was one vote short. Um, November 21st, 2019, so like a year later, he's granted parole on his 24th try to get out of prison. Wow. Yeah, but he tried a lot. And it finally worked. Um, Even though he was granted parole, prosecutors still tried to push it back like push out his release by trying to get him evaluated under illinois sexually violent persons commitment act which requires proof that a person suffers from a mental disorder and that it's probable they will commit acts of violence in the future mm-hmm. uh, but he did not meet the legal criteria for that to be evaluated so they didn't have to do it okay um so he was released February 21st, 2020. So this year, oh my gosh. that was like, you know, I mean, it's October 2020 yeah. now. So, but it really wasn't that long ago. So how old is he now? He's 80 years old. So and he was, yeah, just released. Wasn't he like, you said he was 21? He was probably like 22 or 23 when he went to jail. Yeah. He celebrated his 22nd birthday in jail, in like, jail? during the trial. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so he's 80 now. That's crazy. And um, I saw a video of, like, reporters, like, trying to talk to him 
um, as he's like getting taken out of the courthouse and driven away. And he was like, all these years, I've, my life has been wasted. I'm innocent. They put me through so much and now I'm out and I just want to live a happy life. And um, yeah, so I guess so with the evidence presented and there's a lot of forensic limitations. So we can't be, I mean, the jury found him guilty. But I guess there's still that inkling of was it him because he recanted the confession. I guess but... it's like it's not nothing's evidence. It's all circumstantial, right? Yeah, it's his word, so and they're basically yeah. just taking what he said and then what he showed them, even though he recanted it all, saying that he was being threatened. Mm-hmm. It's basically That's the fact. Up. Yeah, it's basically the fact that he confessed and worked at the lodge and knew and had access to that twine that really put him in jail. And he did fail the polygraph test, but he passed the first two times. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I pretty much, uh, I don't know. I believe so. You, but then you said that uh, coworker said he had scratches on his face. Yeah, some so. When they were questioned, they said they saw, like, weird scratches on his face. Mm -hmm. So some of the employees, I guess, thought it was him, too, obviously. Uh, well, that's good that the police officers actually did end up taking him down into the valley and, like, having him do all that. Because otherwise, they couldn't be that confident that he mm -hmm. did it. Without that, he probably would have walked free right? initially anyway. And they're actually... There are actually a lot of people out there who believe he's totally innocent. And I don't know. I guess you can see it both ways because it's circumstantial and mm -hmm. not like hard proof. But I don't know. He just, he knew those details like about the plane. That's, like, that's the big thing. That's what makes me stick to the thought that he probably did do it. And yeah, I mean, I guess with an investigation like that, you really have to go into every single detail and really talk it through with the person if they're in the, if they're in the confession at that time so that you can say yes they did it they gave me these details no one else would have known them because otherwise if they just said oh yeah i did it and they're like okay cool great and then they recant it then you're like well crap i missed my opportunity yeah so i you know actually at first i was uh kind of judging the police officers for doing that but now i'm like thinking that that was intelligent yeah they were able to get more information. That's the way they did it. Like, they got them, so. Well, anyway. That was our first case. That was uh, the Starved Rock yeah. murders of 1960. Yes. So, in this time, um, I prepared all the peppers and um, prepared the meat and the rice. So, now I just kind of have to mix it together and put it in the oven, and then we can eat. Um, Yum. Yep. So, I'll put it, uh, the re recipe on our uh, Facebook page. Yes. And maybe post a picture of it if it looks pretty. We'll see. Yeah. And along with that, we'll post a picture of St. Louis mm -hmm. Canyon. Um, yeah. Maybe some other photos maybe as well. Maybe a picture of my wedding. If we're oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we're not in St. Louis Canyon, though. But the, it's really beautiful there. And the, in the winter, the waterfalls freeze in place. Yeah, it looks really pretty. So yeah, Emily and I went and we've we've hiked through there in the winter, especially Emily went in mm -hmm. slippers. Oh my god, I'm kind of notorious for wearing the wrong the footwear. wrong footwear for hikes. Yeah, oops. Uh, when I asked her to be one of my bridesmaids, 
<laughs> I guess this is on me though. Yeah. I forgot to tell her that we were going to Star Brock and it's like it's like a couple hours away. Yeah. I forgot to tell her that we were going there that day because Emily's just the type to be like, oh, you want to hang out? Cool, I'm over. I'm coming over. <laughs> and so I just was like, okay, great. Emily's coming over. Anyway, and she was wearing big old high heels. Oh, my God. They were it was like a one-inch heel. But, like. They, no, they <laughs> were. Works too. It was It was a good size. It was a, it was a heel. <laughs> um, yeah, well, oops. <laughs> that was kind of on you, though. Yeah. I mean, we've got plenty of fun stories that we'll share about our different experiences. We've gone on eight-day canoe trips mm-hmm. um, Yeah, in the complete wilderness of Canada. Uh, we've gone... Um, we can talk about that one. Eventually, we'll do, like, a Canadian one or something. <laughs> yeah, and we'll talk about that trip. That trip was beautiful. It was awesome. There was just a... Uh, Oh, we can talk about our foot experience in the bar on that trip. Oh, yeah. Ooh. We're, oh, that story alone could have almost turned into something really yeah. creepy. So, yeah, let us know if you want to hear that story because that one's, that one's hilarious. It's the it's probably one of the weirdest things that's ever happened to me in my life. Yeah, but yeah. anyway. It was great. It's a great memory. <laughs> it's a good story, at least. Uh, well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Um We'll have more soon. So also with this podcast, one thing we're planning on doing is we want to have maybe like every fourth episode or something. We, well, does that make sense? Once a month at the end of the month. Yeah. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Except it's the end of the month now, but whatever. At Next the end of, Yeah. At the end of each month, what we're planning on doing is we will uh, watch a movie or a documentary Um or just like a TV show that is related to a specific murder. And then we're going to talk about that TV show and our movie, whatever. Um, and then talk about like what actually happened in the murder and how well they relate. So for example, yeah. um, there's a lot of stuff that happens in American horror story. Oh yeah. And so we want to talk about some of those. And Emily loves. I love American horror story. Yeah. I'm actually, and- I'm like watching it right now again. And especially the, what's um, New Orleans. Yes. She loves New Orleans. I do. So that I whole really do. season where they're in New Orleans and, um, yeah, anyway. There's a lot of real people in their shows. So mm-hmm. we could do, like, a whole series on just American Horror Story. Right, so. right. Yeah. So anyway. And we're shout gonna... out to Kendrick. That was his idea, right? Yeah, my husband yeah. Kendrick. That was his idea. It was a good idea. But also what we're going to do is – uh, let you know the week before so that you guys can watch it too and then you kind of be involved in it and learn about what actually happened and how well it relates yeah well that's all folks let's talk about all right um how can we end this okay well once again i'm casey and i'm emily and this was your very first episode of a sprinkle of sugar a dash of murder <laughs> <laughs>